Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with WeGo grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at WeGo since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgiev, class of 2022. Today's interview is with class of 1998's Kirk W. Johnson, best-selling author, screenwriter, founder of the List Project to Resettle Iraqi Allies. I'm really excited for this interview. As for years, teaching freshman global studies with Mr. Saner, we would use the 60 Minutes feature of Kirk's work initiating the LIST project, which has helped over 2,500 U.S.-affiliated Iraqis make it safely over the years. Make it to safety over the years. It was always such a point of immense pride for us to feature Kirk's work as civic and moral courage to our classes. Joining us today from the class of 1998 is Kirk W. Johnson. Kirk, tell us what you do. Uh, well, I'm an author now and a screenwriter as well, but I, I also continue doing a fair amount of, of advocacy work on the side. Kirk, where did you go after uh, you graduated from WeGo? So, I uh, first of all, it's hilarious to me because I've done so many interviews, but no one's ever... No one's ever said we go to me. So, so uh, I love, uh, I love like uh, being back in the familiar language here. But um, um, I had a kind of unusual sort of trajectory out of we go. But I um, to explain it, I'd just back up a few minutes. But like I had to um, when I was fifteen, so I was uh, I guess a sophomore. My grandmother took me to Egypt during Christmas break. And I went for like two weeks and I'd never been there before. It was just, she just wanted to take her grandchildren on different trips. It was, I was very lucky. As soon as I got back, I was to, to West Chicago. I was like, I want to know more about the Middle East. I want to, I thought I wanted to maybe become an Egyptologist and study ancient Egypt. I wanted to learn Arabic. And, uh, and so the first thing I did was call up College of DuPage um, and see if they had any Arabic classes. And they had an intro to Arabic course in the evening. I had my I wasn't old enough to drive yet, so my mom drove me there, dropped me off. And after that first class, she picked me up and I was really kind of bummed out because there were only two students in the class and COD told me that... Um, unless a third student enrolled, they were going to have to cancel the class due to sort of under enrollment. And so my mom signed up for that class oh, that's so um, sweet. To, uh, to make it happen. And, and I was such a punk that like when, when she would, when we would go to class, to Arabic class after, after normal high school, like I wouldn't even sit next to her. I would sit like <laughs> behind her in a different row. Um, but then, but then as soon as, uh, 
everything very quickly took off from there. So like I, I quickly kind of exhausted what COD had for Arabic. Um, and we found private tutors, uh, a private tutor through the Egyptian consulate in Chicago. So like once or twice a week from my junior and senior year, I was hopping, uh, I would walk from this from the high school to the train station and hop a train into Chicago and and go take my Arabic class. The University of Chicago, I talked them into letting me audit courses at the Oriental, Oriental Institute, which is sort of like the, you know, premier Egyptology uh, program. That was during the summer, of, like when I was summer of junior year. So I was like really, you know, instantly like diving into this part of the world. And I mean, personally, it was hugely important to me just because it, it made all of the kind of high school drama recede into the background a little bit. Like I just didn't care about it as much because I was focused on other things. Um, and I even skipped my graduation from WeGo. I mean, I graduated, but I didn't go to the, the commencement uh, because I I had been admitted to the American University in Cairo um, to an intensive summer program for Arabic. So, um, so I was already uh, like out the door basically. Um, and so, you know, that was the, that was, that was basically, it all started with that trip when I was 15 and, and basically realizing that there were all of these resources in in the area in the burbs but also in chicago proper that i you know tried to learn everything i could to help me sort of launch out of there if that makes sense how, how long would you say it took you to become nearly fluent uh in Arabic? i i would say i mean it's a it's a trickier language uh i mean i i ended up getting my degree from university of chicago in in what they call Near Eastern language and civilization and civilizations, but uh, but with a focus on Arabic, I think I spent maybe five, six years really intensively studying it, and I was living in the region off and on. Um, but uh, before I would say I was even approaching fluency, but the the challenge with Arabic is that there's there's something called classical Arabic, uh, which is sort of what you would how a, you would how a newspaper article would be written, but it's very formal and people don't actually speak that way. And then there's colloquial Arabic, um, the different dialects, but but an Egyptian Arab sounds very different from someone from Syria or from Saudi Arabia. And so you spend a lot of time like learning one dialect and then you you move one country over and you you kind of almost have to start over oh. again. Uh so it's it's a it's a punishing language, but um, uh, but I mean I I I spent many years of intense study uh, wrestling it to the ground, and and uh, and I, I was I was constantly feeling sort of humbled by by how challenging it was. So when you were at U of C, were you able to uh, travel some more uh, within that program? Yeah, um, I had a. Um, Let's see, my third year there, um, I, I received a, 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 like a grant or a scholarship um, uh, to go study in, in Syria, in Damascus. Um, 
her that was for a summer um and then um and then that was the uh right before my my fourth year uh 9-11 happened and it was a very kind of uh immediately uh confronting event for, for all of us but personally because within a within a week or two, I was getting recruited by intelligence agencies to, to go work for them. Um, but I, I, I had, I hadn't started studying the language to become a spy or anything like that. Um, but it, the choice was also made a lot easier for me because I had, I had applied and, and won a Fulbright scholarship, uh, to Egypt to return to Egypt. So as soon as I graduated from college, I, I, I left for Cairo, um, and spent, I don't know, a little more than a year there conducting research on these these books about political Islam that nobody was reading back then. Um, but it was while I was there that the that the war in Iraq uh, started, uh, and so I I started I was sort of moonlighting as an intern at the New York Times at the Middle East Bureau there, um, and I was I was using my Arabic to help all of these times journalists who were pouring into the region to help them make sense of what was going on. I was translating the Arabic newspapers for, for the times every, every morning. Um, and, um, but all, all along the way I was, you know, profoundly disturbed by the run up to the war. I was opposed to the war. Um, and I kept, uh, I kept, but I kept reading all of these articles about how our government did not have hardly anyone that spoke the language or that knew the region because I come from a family of public servants. I, I wouldn't expect anyone to remember this, but my dad was, uh, the state representative for, for the district. And then he was a state Senator. Um, and I was raised with this very, um, firm belief that it's it's easy to form opinions about something it's the the thing that separates us is whether you're going to act on them or how you're going to act on them to actually try to to change them or to make a difference and so i i even though i was opposed to the war um i saw that we were then trying we were pouring billions of dollars into trying to rebuild the country of Iraq. And I felt that, okay, I'm not going to go as a soldier. I'm not part of the invading force. I, but USAID, the U S agency for international development, which was in charge of trying to rebuild the country, they were there to try to get clean water, uh, to come out of the faucets, to, to rebuild schools, to, um, repave roads, to do training for, for members of parliament, all of this kind of stuff. So I felt a kind of ethical obligation to, to go help there. I saw it as a way of, of trying to, to right a wrong, if, if that makes sense. Um, and so I, I went over, um, I guess I was 24 at that point, uh, when I, when I went to Baghdad. When you first landed, uh, in, in Baghdad, um, what were some of the type of, differences that you felt because being in Cairo, but then being in a place that is now, um, has so many more tensions. What was the, how, how were you, how did you kind of acclimate to that sense of safety or lack thereof? 
Oh, it's a completely, uh, I mean, it's a good question because I, I, having lived in Damascus and in Cairo, I, I, you know, I lived in Baghdad for a while and then in Fallujah, but, but at least when I was in Baghdad, I didn't feel like I was even in the Middle East at all. Um, it's, it's hard, it's hard to, for, for an outsider to wrap their minds around this, but like the, you know, um, back then just even landing in the, in the, in the city was a, a kind of high risk proposal. I mean, we had, I flew in on a little private charter that, um, um, you know, they had to do what's called a corkscrew landing into the airport, but where you, you basically, the pilots basically just jam the nose of the plane down and then bank hard left. And you're just, people are screaming and crying and throwing up and praying and all of the alarm systems are going off on the plane. And they're doing this to avoid getting hit by a, by a surface to air missile or an RPG. Um, and then at the final second, then the pilots quickly, you know, jerk the wheel and level the plane out and the plane kind of smacks into the runway. Um, and then from there, then you climb onto a Black Hawk to, to get, you know, lifted from that airport, that military airport to the, to the, the USAID compound. Um, and then you enter this kind of otherworldly space of like what was once the seat of power where the, where Saddam Hussein and the government, all, all they all lived, except now it's full of Americans and, uh, you know, diplomats and aid workers and soldiers. And there's, you know, you, there's, you know, there's pizza huts there that have been put in for the Americans. There's, you get this calendar of a, a schedule of weekly events and it'll be like a, you know, a three on three basketball tournament that at the court behind Saddam's palace or like, you know, surf and turf night at Saddam's pool. So it was, it was not, um, uh, it was not a, just so people are clear. I'm, I, 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 I was kind of horrified by how we were acting there and, and the setup. It was just a, um, uh, it was not what I thought I was getting into. Uh, and that's also partly why I, um, started agitating to get out of the green zone and into the field because I hadn't gone there to risk my life to, you know, eat steak and lobster in a palace kind of thing. I wanted to go actually try to do something worthwhile. Um, and so, um, as it happened, I, right around the time I asked like a new position, they, they were trying to, USAID was trying to start doing projects in Fallujah, which, has kind of evaporated from the American public consciousness, but Fallujah was sort of the heart of the, of the whole insurgency. Um, and we basically laid waste to the city and the fate of it became this big political, um, like if Fallujah could be pacified and, and, and sort of brought into the American camp, then it would be like a big sort of, uh, psychological coup. Um, but it was, you know, so there I was in a much different situation where it was, you know, uh, there were snipers, there were car bombs, there were roadside bombs, there were, um, you know, it was a, a very dangerous situation. Um, but 
along the way throughout my time there, there was one kind of striking thing, which was that um, I was one of the only people working for USAID that spoke Arabic. And as a result, I became very close with the Iraqis that were risking their lives to help us. Um, Initially, I I wanted to just befriend them because I, I had studied the Egyptian dialect, I had studied the Syrian dialect, and I wanted to actually learn the Iraqi dialect of Arabic. So it, it sort of really started in this innocent way where I would sit, I'd be like the only white guy sitting with the Iraqis in the cafeteria with a little notebook, just asking them like, okay, in Egypt, they say it this way. In Iraq, they say it that way. Um, and I became friends with a lot of them. I didn't, you know, they were, they were completely, um, you know, they were risking their lives to help us, they were doing everything from acting as interpreters and translating for for Americans to bringing in food to, you know, back when I was in the green zone, we had a bunch of drivers that would bring us from one compound to the other. Um, they, they literally watered the gardens of Americans living in the green zone. Um, but in doing so, they became seen as as collaborators and and traders that were helping the Americans. And so they started getting these threats. And, um, and I I didn't really know the extent of this uh, until, until after I got back to the U S but anyways, I don't know if I'm jumping you around. No, not, no, not at all. That was, and, you know, and so upon your return, you know, if, if I could almost, uh, interpret, you know, you had kind of um, two spinning plates emotionally, which would be kind of that feeling of not being able to resolve what it was that you saw so many of the people that you worked with and to, to see that they are now um, uh, still in harm's way. But then there was also the you having to unpack what you saw and what you can't unsee from what you saw in, in war. Yeah. And so I think that that's really it's it's fascinating that those were the two things that you had to really grapple with upon your return. So uh, so how long were you then in Iraq for? So what was how, how many what was the, the time spent there? Yeah, well, so that, so that was I was there for uh, all of 2005. And I was supposed to be there um, well into 2006, um, but my my return was under very unplanned circumstances. But I took after a year in, in Iraq, I took what was supposed to be like a, a week or a ten day vacation, and my my family was having a reunion of sorts in the Dominican Republic. Um, my my aunt and uncle. Um, were running an orphanage down there. And so they were kind of hosting. And so I flew all the way from, you know, several different countries in flights to get out of Iraq into the, to the DR. Um, and my first night there, I had this kind of strange, um, occurrence, but I, you know, I went, I remember everything fine. I went to sleep. Um, and then the next thing I know I was, standing in front of the window in my, my, the, the hotel we were at. And I was looking out across the way at this sort of unfinished, 
building and I thought I was back in Fallujah and that I wasn't wearing any body armor. And, and I, I kind of freaked out and thought that I was, you know, exposing myself to, um, to getting shot by a sniper or something. And so I quickly crouched down below the window. And for whatever reason, I, I kind of woke up and stored that memory, but I had never sleepwalked before. It was just kind of a very strange occurrence. And I, I went back to sleep the next night. Um, like I didn't wake up, but in the middle of the night, like around 4 AM, I apparently crawled out to my window sill. Um, the resort, a resort guard was wandering past and saw me and pointed a flashlight up at me. And he said, I started yelling at him in a language he didn't know. So I don't, I don't, I, I have no memory of any of this, but basically he started running around to the, to the front of the building to wake my family up when he heard this thud of me falling. And, uh, I fell, I think it was like around I don't know, 17 or 18 feet oh or so um, to, to concrete um, and broke both my wrists. I broke my jaw. I broke my nose. I cracked my skull in two places. Uh, and I tore my, my face up so badly that um, um, I, I needed something like 120 or 30 stitches just to, to stop the bleeding. Oh. And so, so I was pushed back in a wheelchair through O'Hare um, at a time when I was, you know, with a mask on my face with casts on each arm uh, with my jaw wired shut. Uh, and this was at a time when I was, you know, managing tens of millions of dollars of aid programs and I was supposed to be back, you know? And so suddenly I was back home in West Chicago living with my parents. I couldn't even open a door. I couldn't feed myself. Um, I was going through one surgery after another. Um, I mean, every doctor I've had has told me I should be either, um, you know, dead or in a wheelchair. But I, I kind of sank into this profound depression about just feeling like I just nearly died. And for what? Like the, the war was a disaster. The reconstruction was a disaster. Nothing I did really had contributed anything meaningful. Um, and it was in that kind of haze that I started getting emails from my Iraqi friends who were now becoming refugees because they were getting death threats and getting chased out of Iraq. And I didn't know the first thing about how to help a refugee. Um, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I was angry about the U S government betraying them and basically abandoning them once they became, uh, imperiled. And so the thinking was that, and I'm just laying this out, like in a, in a way that like your students would un like understand. Cause I think, I mean, when I was in high school, I always, you always hear about people doing stuff and they're, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's, there was no master plan. I was just following like a gut feeling of like right or wrong. Um, and, and letting that lead me, I didn't have dreams of becoming a refugee advocate or anything like that. But I thought if I could help just one friend of mine, um, escape and maybe make it to safety somewhere, I didn't even think the United States, then maybe it wouldn't be a complete bust, you know, that I could at least say like, all right, well, 
that was a that was a hell of an experience, a bad experience, but at least I helped. At least I did something to help this one guy. And so, without really having, you know, I like I wrote, I wrote, I liked writing and stuff, but I didn't even, I didn't think I was going to be an author or a writer or anything like that. Um, I was just angry about the situation, and so I sat down and I wrote an op-ed, an, an opinion piece. Um, this is in like late two thousand and six and sent it off. It was published in the Los Angeles Times. Um, and I thought somebody else would read this. Somebody in power would read it. And it really, it was naive of me, but I thought then they'll just reach out to my friend maybe and if they were moved and, and maybe give them a visa or, or tell them what to do. But what ended up happening was that as soon as that op-ed came, it was the first it was the first thing anyone had really written about what was happening to these Iraqis and, and what we should be doing to, to confront this problem. Uh, but I started getting all kinds of other emails from, from Iraqi colleagues who had read it or, or who heard I was trying to help this first friend. And then very quickly, it was sort of rifling through this diaspora of, at that point, there were already you know, millions of Iraqi refugees um, who all started emailing me for help, but I didn't, I didn't know what I was, what to do. I didn't, I didn't have an organization. I'd never run an organized, like a nonprofit. I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of connections in Washington or anything like that. Um, but in the absence of any real strategy, I just, there were all of these names coming in where there were entire families saying that I was their only hope, which is a, a kind of a mighty burden to, to feel. And so I just opened up Excel and started punching their names into a list. And, you know, what day did you flee? What's, what's your birthday? What are the names of your kids? What's your wife's name? What, what are their name uh, birthdays? What's your phone number? What's your current location? And I didn't even know what I would do with that list, but the list very quickly started growing. And at some point I realized like, okay, well, I need to bring this list to the state department and give it to them so they can at least see, um, you know, what what's happening to their former employees and how to reach them. And I'm, I'm giving you like a very, compressed version, but basically everything then flowed from just starting to compile that list where then every time I brought the list to DC, there would be, you know, journalists covering me, like, you know, writing about how I dropped this list off. And then there were TV crews. And then all of a sudden I, I was able to use that exposure to basically gain access to to, to senators and, and Congress people. And so within six months of writing that op-ed, I was like meeting pretty regularly with, with Senator Kennedy and, and mapping out a, uh, a new visa for these Iraqis that was called the special immigrant visa that, that those who worked for us that needed it could apply for it. Um, did you feel, and so, it, Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm oh, as you say, did you feel that it was uh, just kind of 
an oversight that they initially had, or was it because it would have brought in a type of maybe political embarrassment, maybe a column A, column B situation that they may have completely ignored this group of people that were absolutely instrumental in keeping uh, Americans and the mission going as much as possible? Um, I think it was, I don't think it was an oversight. I mean, well, I guess, you know, it's probably a combination. I think I think it was an oversight because they didn't really care about these people. Mm-hmm. They were always viewed as third-class citizens, and so they just didn't really put any, you know, they didn't put much uh, thought into their fate. Um, but then very quickly, I realized there was, what I was fighting for was was dead against what the official government line was, which was that, and that back then this was the Bush administration, but that the, you know, we had sent all of these troops and what was called the surge and the surge had worked and solved the problem. And therefore all of these Iraqis should be going home and they're fine now. But I was wielding a list that had, um, you know, all kinds of horrendous details of people being tortured, of their kids being kidnapped, of their loved ones being killed because all because they had worked for us. And so um, it became a, a, a very um, kind of explosive thing because I was basically saying, like, I don't care what your politics are. This is this transcends like partisanship. This is just a question of these people are dying because they're interpreting for U.S. servicemen and women and U.S. aid workers and diplomats. Do we think that's right? And so, you know, very quickly, though, I realized that, um, you know, um, me just dropping lists off wasn't going to be enough um, and to actually give these people meaning, meaningful help to navigate this very convoluted process of applying for, for a visa and for refugee resettlement. And so that's why I started this, this organization, uh, which is called the List Project. Um, and at the heart of it was this, um, this army of, of lawyers, basically, from uh, ultimately became eight of the, of the nation's top law firms. There were hundreds and hundreds of, of you know, brilliant attorneys who were basically giving me pro bono time and representing Iraqis on my list. And they weren't all immigration lawyers. A lot of them were, you know, you know, in litigation or mergers or in acquisitions, but they're, these are all very smart people. And you can, once they learn the process and the training, like then they're, they're off and running. And so, um, so soon it was not just me and my little binder of, of names, it was now me and this great force of lawyers who were all pressuring the government on behalf of their clients. Um, and so then that that changed the dynamics, and, and very you know soon thereafter, I started um, hearing that people were getting approvals and that they were coming. And actually, the first guy on on the list who was one of my best friends in Iraq, um, um, he. He was basically living in hiding in in Syria with his wife, and he got his. They got their visas, and I called my mom and dad. At this point, I was living in Boston, but I called my mom and dad in West Chicago, and 
said, okay, it's time for you guys to step up. And so they, they opened their home to this Iraqi couple for four years and they, you know, he became known as the fourth Johnson <laughs> brother. Uh, there was three of us and, um, and, um, and, you know, he and his wife, and now they have three kids. They live in Wheaton. Um, they're, they're a, this wonderful success story. And there's, there's, and there are a lot of other Iraqis that ended up in, in West Chicago and in the suburbs that, that were first on my list. Um, when you, you now that you know we're on the topic of of helping with the list what is what do you think for people that are listening to this like what's the if they want to optimize and maximize the help of for refugees that are being resettled in the United States which organizations uh, along with the list project do you think uh, really uh, provide the best services so world relief uh I think is the the organization that is helping refugees that have already been resettled, meaning that they're they're now in the United States and they're the ones that are helping uh, those in the in the western suburbs there. Um, and so, for example, there's a a huge need right now because uh, you know when when Kabul fell this past August. Uh, I mean, we're one of we're in the midst of another massive refugee crisis of of Afghans who are are running from the Taliban, and I was actually involved in 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 those efforts directly helping a lot of Afghans get through those gates into the the Kabul airport and to get them onto planes and things. Um, and so, if people are if people want to help refugees they just need to call up world relief i think their their offices there are in wheaton and they will tell you right away what they need could be that kids need backpacks who are starting school they might need some of them just need friends to help understand life in america some of them need to you know uh they need uh you know tutoring in english um the older ones need help learning how to drive that kind of thing, but there's no shortage of, um, of need there. Uh, and so that's probably the most immediate local way of, um, of, of, of digging into it. You were, you, you were writing your first book. How did that process begin? Yeah. So I, I really, um, at some point, like you have to understand that, like I, I was, I thought all along that when I was when I was doing this that you know maybe I would first I would just write this op-ed piece and then that would be it so you know a couple days of work or something um and then and then it became a month and then it became 6 months and then it became a year and then it became many years and I I realized that oh it doesn't really it didn't matter who was in office, who was in the White House, what party it was, that it was just this endless battle that we just didn't seem to want to let these people in. Um, and and so I, I felt at, at some point that all of the things that I was learning through this experience that, um, you know, I wanted, I didn't want them to evaporate or to, to die with just me. Um, and so I, I started thinking about, um, 
sort of consolidating them all in, into a book or at least writing a memoir about this whole this whole battle. Uh, and so in 2012, um, I uh, got a, a, a book deal to, to write my first book, which is To Be a Friend is Fatal. And that comes from something that that Henry Kissinger said as South Vietnam was being overrun after we pulled out. Um, he said that to be an enemy of the United States is dangerous, but to be a friend is fatal uh, because we abandoned many South Vietnamese to, to a really ghastly fate there. Um, and so I didn't really, I hadn't written a book before. I, I, I knew this, I knew the story well, but it was really just a kind of muddling along to, to try to figure out, um, how to do it. But that first book, uh, was published by Scribner and it came out in, um, in the fall of 2013. Um, and a part of it I felt was like a, I, I thought of it as a way to maybe start, you know, almost literally putting like a bookend to that part of my life that I, I wanted to, to start doing other things with my life that I, I knew I was never going to be totally free of this, but I didn't, I didn't want to spend the next 50 years just arguing with bureaucrats at the state department or the department of homeland security. Um, I had other, other things I wanted to do. Um, and so it, it was always a kind of conflicted mindset because I, I never felt like I did enough to help the people that needed help there. But, um, but, but the book was sort of a way of starting to say like, okay, this is, this is what I did. Uh, this is how far I was able to kind of carry the baton and, and maybe somebody else can pick it up from there. The story in The Feather Thief about how you serendipitously came to the muse of beginning that journey to write that book is so fascinating. And I was wondering if you can kind of kind of uh, review the story uh, of, of how that happened uh, when you were uh, fly fishing in, in northern New Mexico. Yeah, sure. So I mean, the the you know, I grew up, I grew up, you know, it's funny, because it's like, you're probably one of the only people I can tell this story to where I can actually say, like, I, I grew up learning how to fish on the DuPage <laughs> river. Um, and, and, you know, casting night crawlers for, for carp and bluegill and bullheads and things. And, and what was once one of the most radioactive rivers <laughs> in the country. Um, and, and so I always, and I, a lot of Midwesterners are like this, but like, I always, I always saw fly fishermen as, sort of these snobby elitist types. Um, and so I just, I never even tried it. Uh, my dad wasn't into it. Um, but it wasn't until I was living in new England and I, I just went once with a friend and, uh, it was this instantly kind of magical sensation. Um, I mean, trout, if, if fly fishermen usually are going for trout, and they, they tend to live in the most beautiful places on earth. They're up in mountain streams where there are no cell phone signals and where to do it right, um, 
it it's all a function of how still you are, of how observant you are to to what's going on around you in nature, to to how quiet you are, and you start kind of um, engaging with what I always kind of call like the limbic or like the caveman part of your brain, where it's like you know you're you're just studying how water is breaking over rocks um, and whether, and how deep the pool behind that rock might be. And is it deep enough for a trout? What's the water temperature like? Which way is my shadow falling on the water since trout can detect that? You know, what are the, what's the, what's the life cycle of the insects? And so one of the first, first things I do when I got to a river is you pick up stones from the bottom of the river and you, there are these little casings on the bottom that you can, squeeze these little bugs out and you can see what color that their their thorax is and and um and then try to find the fly that matches that color and it's a very uh like something i mean it's it's very therapeutic but it's also you're sort of um you're sensing something very deep in your brain uh being activated some people get on a river and they absolutely despise it and they don't want to try it but for me it became this um a very escapist uh, outlet for me where when I, I was so stressed by what I was doing with the list project and with the demands of the book that I, anytime I had any free time, I would, you know, drive into New Hampshire or Maine or Vermont and, and just spend the day on a river. And I was in New Mexico. I was there at like a, they have these sort of writers residencies that you can apply to and they, give you a house for a couple months or a few months and you just work. And so I was in Northern New Mexico and I just went on Google and pulled up the first fly fishing guide that I could, because you, at least the first time you go out, you want a guide to kind of show you the ropes of like of each particular river and, and, and what insects are going on at that hatching at that time and, and whatever. And so we were fishing um, in, in the Sangre de Cristo mountains, which are part of the Rockies. Um, and I was having this great day fishing with this guide named Spencer Syme. And about halfway through the day, he, he opens up a fly box to get another fly. And I, I catch a glint of this very kind of otherworldly looking fly um, where like trout flies are, they actually look like bugs. They, they're not pretty things. They're like drab colored. They're brown and green and black. But this thing that he had in his fly box was like this huge, brilliant, iridescent, you know, turquoise and emerald and cherry colored fly. Um, and I, it had all of these exotic bird feathers tied around it and this was a salmon fly but it wasn't just a salmon fly it was a victorian era salmon fly that that he had tied according to these sort of you know 19th century bibles of, of, of on fly tying it's a very strange thing but he you know i i quickly fixated on it just because it was a, a it was new to me and i was asking like why does he do it and do do salmon do salmon care? Turns out salmon are essentially colorblind, so they don't care. It's like, where, where do you get the feathers? How much does this feather cost? And this guide 
sort of sensing my interest, he goes, well, if you think that's, if you think this is interesting, you should hear about this kid, this American kid that, uh, that just broke into the British Museum of Natural History and he stole like about a million dollars worth of dead birds, these exotic birds that were stored in these uh, research cabinets, uh, which he plucked and sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars to this kind of tiny cultish community of these Victorian salmon fly tires. And it was a very unusual sensation but as he was saying it i was like in my mind i was like holy smokes like this is a book like there must be either it's not true because it's just so crazy or it is true and somebody else has already written it um but um like as soon as i got back um i started i went online and i started getting access to these sort of private forums with you know, black market transactions of illegal feathers. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I was just so fascinated that I started taking screenshots and like taking notes and, and, um, but it was so completely different from what I was doing. I was like, I was like the guy that was writing about the war and going on TV and talking about the refugee crisis or testifying before Congress. And like, what, what in the world am I doing looking into a, a story about a, a heist of a bunch of birds, but it was because it was so different, it became almost like this sort of private outlet for me uh, and be, be eventually morphed into like a full blown obsession, but where I would, I mean, I remember testifying before Congress once and then checking back into my hotel room and then logging into these forums to take like screenshots of, and you know, who's selling which feathers to who. And, and, um, uh, but again, kind of like with the list project, I didn't have a plan at that point. When I first discovered this, I had not even written my first book. So, um, I don't even, I didn't even have an agent, a literary agent yet at that point. It was just, I was just, following my instinct you did all these things so well what was it like just knowing how to research in a particular way and and do all these different things was it a lot different in your approach from the first book to this one in the actual writing of of it yeah yeah no it's a great question i mean it was uh it was almost completely different because with the first book it was a memoir it was just you know basically looking back at, at my life and of those of the Iraqis I was focusing on. Uh, and so I had already kind of lived that story. It was, it was just finding a, a way to, to tell it in hopefully a compelling way. In this case, I, I mean, I, I remember at the beginning just sitting down and making a list of all of the things that I didn't know. And it was, it was astronomical. It was, I didn't know, I didn't know how to tie a fly, for example, but then I zoom out. And I'm like, okay, I don't know. Actually, I don't really know anything about birds other than like the most basic stuff from, from high school or grade school. I don't know anything about the Victorian era. So I'd like, I start making all these little boxes to, to, or bins to start filling. I didn't know anything about, um, 
natural history museums are why I thought these at the first, I thought these were all just the birds that you see on a class field trip with their wings outstretched. But this museum is host to the second largest ornithological collection on the planet. They have something like 750,000 birds. And these are birds where their, their wings are pulled tight against them and they're stored, you know, dozens per drawer in a, in a, building that is closed to the public, but open to scientific researchers. They have two and a half miles of shelving just for birds that are preserved in spirits. There are hundreds of thousands of eggs that have been, you know, in many cases, these specimens were gathered before the word scientist was even coined. I didn't know anything about the science that was being done with this, that we understand evolution through natural selection because of these birds at this museum that we that we can, you know, if you can examine a bird that was captured from this island in 1820 and compare it to the same species of bird captured from the same island in 1850 and in 1920 and 1950, that unlocks this universe of insights about how the earth is changing that you can't do if you don't have this collection. And so basically what i what it started with just a kind of a list of you know my ignorance and then literally just starting to buy books on like the victorian era on like basic ornithology books um you know reading biographies of alfred russell wallace who was the main naturalist that that gathered a lot of these birds um and and then as I became more sort of fluent in this space, then it allowed me to kind of hit the ground running when I started doing interviews with, with ornithologists or with researchers who were affected by the heist or with, you know, talking law enforcement, like the detectives into speaking with me. Um, and, you know, and then basically, um, I mean, ultimately I didn't, I was, this was a multi-year effort to basically start flipping people in this community against each other to start telling me what they knew about the crime and 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 the feather thief himself. Well, I mean that. I mean, there, I'm wondering if there's any professional envy amongst other true crime writers because you really got to confront the person at the center uh, of all of this, and there, there's a moment in the book that. I remember I was like, oh, this is really cool. He gets to, this is really exciting. He's going to confront Edwin here. And then you, you kind of like pump the brakes a little bit for the reader. You're like, I know that this seems like it's a cool idea, but this is still a criminal. And I need to make sure that I am really going into this with a clear mind that there aren't any other maybe possible repercussions physically, you know, that the a threat against me. Um, to the extent that you even hired out uh, a security uh, person to kind of just keep an eye over everything, uh, like what was what was your your mindset going into that first um, uh, uh, the conversation that you were able to have with Edwin? Uh, that must have been like all parts exhilarating but nervous. I I, I just can't even imagine. Yeah, no, it totally was. It was uh, and my I just gotten married to my wife, I don't know, uh, seven or eight months earlier. And, and, um, 
and she came along with me. We flew from Los Angeles to, to Dusseldorf, Germany, where, where the feather thief was living at the time. And I honestly, you know, like when we were boarding the plane, I didn't even, I had no guarantee that he was even going to show up for the interview. I didn't, I, it took me some, it took me, I think nearly four years to get him to agree to this huh. interview um, of just basically checking in every six months or so to see if he had changed his mind. And then at some point um, I must've caught him on a good day or something, but I think he, you know, I ultimately, I mean, I told him like, look, I'm going to write this with or without you, but I think you deserve the opportunity to, to tell me where I'm right or where I'm wrong. Um, but that morning, I mean, I, it was the morning of the interview. I had no, I had no clue if he was just playing me and I was, I would have just spent all of this money and time flying halfway across the world to just sit in a city that I, you know, no one really wants to go hang out in Dusseldorf <laughs> for a couple of days or something, you know? So, um, so it was very, but then as you said, like I didn't, I felt like I knew him very well through my investigation, but I don't really, you don't really know what people are like just from their online presence or, 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 you know, even this heist. And so I did have a, a, a security guard, uh, in hiding who was ready to kind of burst in. If anything happened, I wasn't gravely worried that he was going to do anything, but I, I felt like if there was a, you know, a 5% chance, then I kind of, especially with my wife there felt like I needed to try to, to mitigate that. Um, but I also didn't know once he did show up, um, whether he was going to leave after the first question. Um, I didn't know if he was going to let me record, um, which he, which he did. Um, but then, I had spent a lot of time carefully engineering this sequence of hundreds of questions because I didn't want to just start out and with the really tough questions and, and potentially blow a fuse and then he walks out. And so I think it was the first three hours or so we were just talking about his childhood and his other interests and things. And so it was a very, uh, draining and grueling. I mean, um, it was the most, uh, exhausting interview I've ever done. It was, I think it was seven and a half hours straight. Um, um, and you know, everybody asks me why he agreed to it. Um, my wife was asking it, you know, the morning of the interview. <laughs> um, and, I still don't, I only have guesses as to why he agreed to it, but I think it was maybe a combination of, you know, relentless persistence on my end, but also, you know, I'm always shocked now that I've done this a little bit longer at, at what people's, at the blind spots that uh, are created by people's vanity or egos. And so I think there's a part of it that he just, you know, uh, maybe enjoyed being the center of, of my attention and that here's this guy that just flew around the world to, to just talk to him and learn his story. You know, um, I think he probably also wanted to know how much I had figured out or what I didn't know yet, but, um, but I'm, I'm very glad that he did agree to the interview. So you, again, the book was 
Fantastic. I mean, I, I just, uh, it was, I mean, the fact that you knocked it out of the park again uh, on your, on your second uh, attempt uh, with a book was just, it's, it's so good. You, you have, you know, there's, you had, you were nominated, but for so many uh, awards, what was it like when you are now settling into this kind of, you know, there, there was Kirk W. Johnson who was uh, affiliated with the list. And now you have this kind of second, track of your life that you are that is success that's completely kind of separate from the other one um and that you were able to find success so early in your writing what was that like when you kind of found yourself going on all these different promotional tours for the book and and all that 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 must have been really uh, exciting to be interviewed for npr and and uh, all these uh, other different spots what was uh, what was the book tour like oh it's funny because the when the feather thief came out i had a lot of friends from from dc and from the refugee advocacy community emailing me about it saying like hey this guy's got the same name as you <laughs> and i they were, they were kind of there was some there's a bit of dissonance to like reconcile these two very different um uh parts of my life but i, I also i mean anyone listening to this will understand that like you know all of us are all of us have a, a number of things that we're passionate about or that we want to do and and it's the worst thing to just feel like you've been pigeonholed into just doing one thing in your life you know um and so part of part of this was a sort of like um there was a joy in in doing a, a u-turn or or something completely different also it was just from the from a practical perspective, um, it's it's a shocking story, and there's some outrageous things in the Feather Thief, but it's a story that I think brings some kind of joy along the way, and it's so strange and quirky, and and there's some thrilling aspects to it um, that make people want to recommend it to each other, like. My, my first book and my refugee work is just, I mean, ultimately just devastating. It's just saddening, you know? And so it's, it creates a different response in the, in the reader. Um, and so I think that, I think that explains part of the success of the book is just that it's, you know, the act of investigating this, this crime was escapist for me, but I think for a lot of people reading it, it's also kind of escapist uh, as well. How did you find? Um, but oh, but sorry, answer, sorry, yeah. Uh, no, I just realized I didn't answer your. But the the, I mean, yeah, the 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 tour was. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was thrilling in some ways. It's still happening. The book's been out for, I don't know, nearly nearly four years now. But I mean, I'm I have several events this year alone just to talk about the feather thief um but uh but it was a it was a real thrill just in part because i a lot of the the initial tour there was a a tour for the hardcover and then one for the paperback a year later um but like in chicago for example we did something with the field museum um we did events at university of chicago i will always feel incredibly fortunate to have stumbled across this story. I mean, there were a lot of 
different fly fishing guides that that turned up in New Mexico. And if I had just clicked the next link down, I would have never discovered isn't that, it. Isn't know? that just so, incredible, the serendipity of that? I mean, when you were describing it, I was like, just any other circumstance, maybe you would have found a different story, but this one's so great. And just the fact that it just took that that little bit of a catalyst that just really set in motion an incredible story that you were able to kind of just weave together. It was just, uh, it's incredible. It's incredible. I feel, I feel very lucky, but a big piece of this is just, if I'm not beating the theme to death, there's like a, you know, you're, when you do, I think a lot of us have these sort of moments where you might sense a little fork in the road and you can, you can often just turn your head away from it and just be like, no, I could never do that. Um, and so there's a, there's a, a lot of all of this is just not, not being self-defeatist and, and talking yourself out of things that you know to be interesting or just or, or whatever, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Now, you, how, how did you then know that you had the third book uh, in you, uh, which is The Fisherman and the Dragon? The premise of this is just also fascinating. How did you stumble across uh, uh, this story? It's interesting because that, that, um, that also owes its origin to a, a trip to a, to a river in, in a, in a very different way. But, um, but in, at the, at the end of 2018, um, my dad died, uh, of, he had several forms of, of cancer that we think some of them were, uh, driven by exposure to agent orange cause he was, um, in the 101st airborne in Vietnam. And it was this really brutal year. I mean, my dad, um, who had been working, uh, in the house and in the Senate and then, um, for the governor on the, he was on the governor's parole board. Um, and in like one, two week period, uh, he retired. He and my mom celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And then he got, uh, cancer diagnosis with like a, basically a few months left to live. Uh, and so that at the end of that year, we were all coming to West Chicago every couple few weeks or so to be with him. Um, and he died on December 3rd. Um, I was, I, at the, on that day, I was back home here in Los Angeles and I just, it felt, I didn't know what to do, but I didn't want to just sit at home and try to act like it was a normal day. And so I just, because I had fished so much with my dad and he had kind of turned me on to that love of fishing again on, on the duper as we call it. But, uh, uh, I, I just threw my, my fishing gear in the trunk of the car and I drove up to, uh, it's called the Kern it's a Kern river, uh, out here. It's in the Sierra Nevada range. It's a few hours away from Los Angeles. And on the drive up, I had the, I just had some 
you know, uh, like, you know, Spotify playlist or something going, I, I was barely even paying attention to it. I was just kind of, uh, mourning my dad. Um, but this Springsteen song came on called Galveston Bay. Um, and he starts singing about this Vietnamese refugee who's shrimping in Galveston Bay, Texas, um, who gets into a, like a turf war over, over fishing with this white fishermen and things get bad and then the clan comes in and and i i just i heard the song but i i I was sort of just getting little pieces of it but that that day as i was fishing i just the song kind of the premise of the song kept um popping back into my mind where i was like what is he talking about like it's such a strange like i didn't think it was a based on anything historical it just i thought like what a it's a weird world to build um but like a, a week or two later i just i remembered the song and i i went on i just went online and started googling it um and started reading that springsteen in fact based it on this clash between vietnamese refugees who had been resettled to the united states after the fall of saigon and a lot of them had moved to the Gulf Coast, uh, Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, because the climate was similar, but a lot of them were also fishermen back home. And at first, the white fishermen sold these refugees, these decrepit boats for like 10 times what their actual worth were. They were trying to play the, the refugees for suckers. But the Vietnamese did everything right. Like they, their family members worked as deckhands. They would eat fish from the bay that white people consider junk fish. They wouldn't spend money at restaurants or at bars. They were living, you know, in poverty conditions, like 10 or 12 to a trailer, but they were saving up their money. And within a few years of coming to America, they were, they had rebuilt boats. They had, they were, they were saving enough money to be able to loan to each other to buy brand new boats. And the white fishermen started freaking out because all of a sudden these bays that used to be theirs and they had no real, they could just go out for a few hours and no real competition. All of a sudden there were these like really hungry newcomers that were fishing longer hours. They were going out in weather that, that the white fishermen normally wouldn't go out in. And so they begged the Texas governor to ban refugees, but the governor doesn't have that authority. And so when that, when they realized they couldn't stop refugees from coming in, they essentially summoned the Ku Klux Klan and the Klan came in and started, uh, I mean, there was this really ghastly campaign where they were firebombing Vietnamese boats and homes and holding Klan rallies where they were giving the Vietnamese 90 days to flee or else there would be blood, blood, blood was the line from the Grand Dragon. Um, and so the, the more I started discovering this, it was, it was sort of similar to the feather thief in that I was like, man, I, I wonder who, who wrote that book. Um, cause surely if Springsteen is singing about right. it, like it's, it's known, I, I just must've missed it, but there was nothing. I mean, it's, you know, it's been discussed in some academic books about 
the history of the white supremacist movement and things like that. But there was no, like what I do is called narrative nonfiction and there was nothing like that. And then I figured everyone who lived through it was probably dead. Um, but I started kind of doing my thing and just looking for people's phone numbers. And it's, you know, literally like the, you know, I would find someone's name and then there would be 80 possible email addresses for them through these, you know, various sites. And I would just start emailing every one of them and and start finding them. Um, and I, I realized that most of them were alive. Um, and, and then it became this process of convincing them to talk to me. And then over time it became a, a question of, getting so deep into the investigation that I would know enough to basically almost compel them to talk to me because I had, I basically managed to get confessions for crimes that have gone unsolved for 40 years now, um, from the people who set fire to these boats, uh, and homes. But again, it was the same, you know, I, I grew up with, with, with Vietnamese and and Hmong classmates at at West Chicago at the community high school, and they were close friends of mine. Our class president was was from Laos, um, and it had never occurred to me to back then to think about how they ended up in West Chicago or what how the, how in the world did they end up? Why were they there? But it but they all of this really. Um, like stemmed from a, um, I guess a, a basic, uh, like embrace and recognition that, um, you know, it's crazy that this needs to be said now, but that this is not a country just for white people. Um, and that our country has always been strengthened through the immigrants that come here. Um, and so there is this sort of core, like, and, and I have like, I had a very intimate connection to this story because of my own, um, work trying to help refugees, but also the fact that this was the war that, you know, decades later basically killed my dad off, you know? Um, and so there was a, um, this was, it's a deeply personal story, but this is a, also a different kind of book in that I don't, I'm not in this book at all now, unlike the feather thief where I kind of enter it as a sort of shepherd for the the reader. Um, now this is just, this is just a, um, this is just their story and, and the result of, you know, several years of, of research. Um, but, uh, it's, it's been a huge effort and, and that one's coming out, um, on August 2nd. Um, how do you think you're a stronger writer from the first book to the second book and now the third one? You said like you've taken yourself out of this one, but do you see that there's anything uh, sharper that you do as a writer uh, from the second book to the third? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, honestly, it's a, um, you know, I, this was the, this was the hardest book of the three so far. Um, I had initially submitted it to my publisher 
I don't know, a year and a half ago, and it was over 500 pages. And it was just ultimately, I, I realized now, like it was, I was just trying to kind of get a fence up uh, around the, the herd of, of stories and ideas in it. But it was too long and it wasn't the right, it wasn't the right tone. And I basically, uh, through very much struggle and trial and error, I mean, I, I had to, I probably pressed the delete key on, on, on 70% of that book. Um, and so the, it, I, I initially thought like, oh, each one gets easier, but it's, it's not true. Like they, the the, I think my instincts for research and interviewing are, are getting much better and I'm much more efficient now at, at figuring out how to get people to talk to me. But in terms of, I mean, each book has its own, it sort of insists on its own structure and it's not, it's not immediately clear. Maybe it will be by the time I get to 10 books. I don't know, but, um, but, but, but this was a, um, uh, I mean, a, a very challenging book because it was, it, it was involved getting so many people to talk, but also trying to write it in a way that is still a thriller of sorts that, that makes people want to, cause it's, you can write any book you want, but if people don't get to the, to the finish, to the end of it, it's, you're not really succeeding, you know? And so, um, and so, um, so no, I mean, you know, I think, but the difference between like the first book and this one, it's like, um, uh, massive. I mean, I, I don't even, I don't even think my first book was very well written at all now in hindsight. So that's the other thing I always, I've always think about, like, I think when you're, I think when you're young, you, you, there's such a thrill of like doing something for the first time. And like, um, you know, I remember like the first time I finished writing a short story or whatever that like, you're so proud of it that you're kind of sometimes blinded to some of its shortcomings. And I think that's, it's taken a long time for me to, to understand that the, the, the people that do this stuff for a living, the people that really go far with it. And I still feel like I'm at the beginning. Um, but you have to be kind of bloodless um, in terms of like, if something's not working, if a reader's getting bored, it's not the reader's fault. That's your fault, you know? And so you have to be willing to like constantly um, kind of swallow your pride and say, all right, let's try it again. And what about this? Or what about that? Um, and so I feel like I've gotten very, um, I've gotten, my skin has grown a lot thicker along the way. Um, but uh but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's oh, answering yeah, your question. Sure, or for not. sure, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because that that you know that the that's that hard work of really having to look at your own work because you're right, it's easier to just. I whenever I do a revision with my students, I'm like, you know, you've looked at it a while. It's, that 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 sentence right there is probably looking like furniture right now. You're not even thinking that it actually could be moved or pitched or something like that. It's 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 totally okay. true. Um, um, so. That's exciting. So the book's coming out in August. Now, what do you do at USC's Annenberg uh, Center for Communication and Leadership and Policy? You're a senior fellow there. What are the responsibilities for you there? Uh, it's it's funny. The the uh, I'm 
I'm a senior fellow there that, I mean, you know, like, for example, like a couple of weeks ago, I just went and spoke to um, like an investigative journalism class um, just as like a, a kind of visiting, visiting lecture. Um, um, I, I keep telling them that I feel like I owe them more uh, uh, than, than I've been giving them. But, but one of the, one of the more, more immediate benefits is that, uh, I get access to their, um, to their libraries, but also their, all of the online archives. And so these things like LexisNexis and ProQuest and others that cost, you know, I don't know, they're probably more than $10,000 a year or so. Um, I get all of that through the university. So for my investigations, it's actually like very, it's a huge boost uh, to be able to do that, but I feel like I get more out of it than I, I give back to them. But I, but I do meet with students, um, uh, and I, you know, they want to. They're trying to send a, some interns to me this this summer, like in advance of the launch, to kind of learn learn how I do it and and help me out on on some of the the launch related stuff. But um, but yeah, uh, it's a very like. Uh, I'm like, I'm juggling a bunch of different projects right now. And the, 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 once you finish the book, then it's, you know, many months of figuring out how you're going to talk about it and then which magazine is going to excerpt it and where are you going to do your interviews and where are you going to do your book tour? And, but at the same time, I'm, I'm already starting to think about what my next book could be. Um, <laughs> what's, the, what's the next I'm, river you're going to travel to to get the inspiration, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm, uh, I'm, I am excited because my, uh, my brothers and I are all meeting actually in, uh, in New Mexico in a, in a, in a couple months. And we're going to fish with, with my, my friend, the guide uh, that first told me the story. We're going to return to those rivers so that'll be fun one. so yeah so you have like so you, you said you like a lot of like plates spinning uh, at any given uh, given time i i did see that you're 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 starting a a series on called drug spies is is that what's what uh what state of uh, development is that at right now so that's that was a another kind of crazy story that i was pursuing as a book and then i realized it was probably easier and better to do as it as a TV show, but the it's, it's based in reality on, on how big pharma, the pharmaceutical industry uses ex special forces and cops and detectives to basically carry out, um, espionage and sabotage against their competitors, um, all to protect their patents or to extend the life of their patents or to thwart the development of, of competing drugs. And so the, the implications for all of us, I mean, every single one of us is affected by this industry, um, are huge, but no one really seems to know about, about this part of, of, of the sort of underworld. <laughs> um, and I, I, I know a number of these drug spies and there's a lot of crazy stories, but, uh, so I've, um, it's, I've been developing it with, um, I'm the creator of this show. It's uh, I've written the pilot for it, uh, which is the the, the first episode script. Uh, there's a, a director and a showrunner attached. This is all sounds very Hollywoody, but um, and in a month or so, then we'll start um, 
pitching it to like the HBO and Netflixes of 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 the town of town to see um, uh, who who wants to do what's called a series order, but um, but to basically if if we can if we get a, a go from any of them, then we start actually writing the whole season out um and you know you're hiring a writer's room and all that stuff so um uh so it's it's well beyond like just a an idea at this point but it's not yet in in uh like no one's filming it yet if that uh, makes sense that's exciting wow you got so many things going on uh, kirk this has been so great you've been <laughs> way beyond generous with your time today just sharing this incredible work that you've done in these different uh facets of your life uh you know i I can't believe that we started all the way back with uh you getting uh driven to uh cod for courses on arabic and and here we are working on a a tv series it's it's quite a journey it's really exciting uh to hear uh all this the entire uh the entire course of it uh i i always like ending the, the interview uh with the last kind of question which is um and you've given so many incredible uh, tips for success uh, prior to this in the interview, but just maybe one last uh, crack at it, which is uh, what, what tips for success would you give for current Wildcats? I think when I was younger and certainly like around high school and college age, there was a sort of just, I don't know, like impatience to just uh, to hit the mark or to, to, find success in some way. And so, you know, I remember it'll sound silly, but like, I, I remember when the, when the, when the war in Iraq was looming, feeling really frustrated by it and then feeling like, Hey, I want to, I want to write about this. I want to, I want to have some, I want to have something to say. And I, I tried like writing, a couple op-eds, um, but I, they weren't working. And I realized it was because I just didn't, I didn't, I hadn't lived the experience yet to make, to really give my brain what it needed to write something that would cut through the noise, if that makes sense. And so I, I, I often, I just remember thinking like, oh, how cool would it be to like, actually get something published in the, in the New York times or these other papers. But I, I wasn't at the beginning. I was just, I just was more infatuated with that idea than what it takes to actually make that feasible or, or realistic. Um, and so part of, I think what has guided me is that I've just always tried to dive into these things without relying on other people's permission or, or relying on their perspective on it. And it's not to say that my mind is closed, but that like the, the war in Iraq was 24 seven coverage back then, but I wanted to see it for myself. I wanted to sort of try myself to do something uh, to, to make things better rather than just read about it as a, as a bystander or a witness or something, you know? Um, and so, so much of what then happened was that, you know, all of a sudden I was, I was there, I was in the, I was in the thick of things. And then, and then when the, when the refugee crisis happened and these were friends of mine, then all of a sudden I actually had something 
I had standing to talk about this stuff. And, and I, was at, of a, I was at a very young age that um, otherwise I don't think anyone would have listened to me. And it's not that like, it's, I'm not trying to say like, this is how you get on TV or how to get published, but it's more just a general, like, don't just look for like where the, the, the finish line is. You have to look at the whole route, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and, and be willing to kind of grind through it. And the only other thing, the only other thing that I keep being surprised by is that so many of the good things that have happened in my life professionally have just resulted from just taking the chance to like write people to see if they're willing to talk to me, whether it's for interviews for the book or for advice on how to find a job or whatever. And and there's so many, there's so many times when I think back that like, if I hadn't just reached out to this person or that person, uh, my life would have been much different. And so I'm always like, I get approached by for, for interviews or things like this all the time now, but whenever there's like a high school student that does it, I always answer them because I'm just so proud of them for, for just taking the initiative to just do it. Cause what's the worst that happens? Somebody ignores your note. The best thing is you might actually get a shortcut to learning something more quickly than you would the normal way in life. You know what I mean? And so I know that sounds strange, but like, I, I mean, I remember the Feta Thief, like my first publisher, they had the right, it's called right of first refusal, but they had the right to, uh, to see my next book idea. And that was a Feather Thief. And they, after spending like a year writing this proposal, they passed on it after one day. They just, they thought, oh, Kirk should just write about war and, and we weren't interested, they weren't interested in it. And I remember being really kind of knocked off balance and thinking like, oh, what it, I've just spent all this time, you know, pursuing something that isn't maybe a very good idea. And I don't know why, but I printed the proposal out and um, I found the mailing address of David Attenborough, you know, the, the, the naturalist who's, you know, oh, yeah, does all yeah, the, the nature videos. Yeah. And, um, and he, I knew that he had made his name decades ago through these early documentaries on the birds of paradise. And I just printed the proposal out and I mailed it to him just basically saying, do you think this is a good idea? Like it was sort of a, you know, maybe just checking my own instincts. I didn't expect a response, but then like two weeks later, this Royal Mail envelope came with a handwritten note from Attenborough saying, essentially, you have to write this book. I've been wondering wow. what happened to those birds. <laughs> oh, that's so then, cool. I, he and I are like like pen pals now. Like when I went to England on book tour, I spent his the whole 90, 90, 90th birthday with him or something. Um, and that's and <clears throat> like my life has been like it's like, it's been, it's brought me a lot of joy to like, to know him now, but that's just because I just took the time to put something in a, in an envelope and mail it, you know? So, um, there's so many, there's so many other instances I could point to where it's just like so many people have a good instinct and they kill it on their own. They kill it inside of them. And that's like, it's the worst thing you could do. Um, so at anyways, I, 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 I never really, I don't like giving advice and I always, I don't, 
everything I've done has just been sort of air guitar and, you know, trying to figure it out as I go along. But like, there's a couple things after this much time where I'm sort of like, yeah, it's. Oh, I have one last, I have actually one last question. Uh, one of uh, my very good friends that I, uh, I teach with uh, West Chicago, uh, he has become absolutely enthralled with all things birds uh he's uh, he's just has fallen into it uh, i've never seen someone absorb uh so much information about birds in such a small time as uh, much a, a small amount of time what's your favorite bird uh, in your in the research of feather thief where like that like the the coloring or just the narrative behind it that uh was your uh, your absolute favorite Oh yeah. Uh, it's hard to pick just one, but the, 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 any of the birds of paradise are extraordinary. If you, if you look them up on YouTube, but there's, there's another bird called the flame bower bird, which is this, um, kind of shockingly red crimson red bird that has some some canary yellow on it and they they have these they build these they're called bowers but these kind of fancy nests and and different bower birds to sort of attract a mate they will collect if you look these up on on youtube you'll see like that some of them there'll be one bird that just flies around looking for for you know um like blue stones to to build in a, like a little heap to make his 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 bower more attractive to a potential mate, but the flame bowerbird has this crazy sort of mating dance where it, um, it kind of like lifts one wing up like a matador cape. And then it, it, um, it will dilate its pupils in alternating fashion. So one will go, one will constrict and the other will open up. Uh, and so it's a very like hypnotic thing when you look at it, uh, and it's while it's dancing, its eyes are doing this, like something you've never seen before. Um, but there, you you look at these things and you're like, how on earth did this bird evolve in this way? Um, and and the the sad thing is that the the feather thief stole something like ninety percent of all of the research oh. specimens and all the museums of, of the flame bower bird. So it was also like very directly connected to the house. Oh, that's so it's, I, I want to say that there was a, a radio lab episode a few years ago that may have been discussing that very same ritual of that bird. I'm going to have to look at, I'll, if I think about it, I'll send it to you. Cause it was really, and their thesis for it was that like maybe beauty is the actual driving force of evolution and they were kind of using that as the uh kind of guiding force of the bi biology of the uh, episode it was it was pretty cool yeah the uh in fact that's the he's a close friend of mine he's a ornithologist he's a professor at, at yale named richard prum that um he's the one that's advanced that it's called the evolution of beauty but that some things evolve that make no sense from an evolutionary perspective, from a survival perspective. There are these extraordinary, bizarre things that they don't, they make the bird even more vulnerable to a predator, but that um, they're evolving because they're trying to be more beautiful uh, to, to attract a, a female mate. And this is something Darwin said that 
that men and men, mankind or humans and birds are most uh, uniquely linked by their love of beauty of all creatures on the planet. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if you can go, you can go hard into this stuff. Um, um, but, but uh, I mean, I went into this, into that book with, without really having any real appreciation of, of bird life. And now I'm, you know, I, I, I mean, I've gone on birding expeditions now and stuff. So uh, I try not to embarrass my wife, but like I am paying attention to, to what birds are, are flying around. Yeah, right oh, it's, it, he, it's a, it, it's a, it's, 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 I would say it is uh, arrested him intellectually yeah, on every yeah. level. And, and he's a ferocious reader on anything, but this is like, I, I never knew that he had more to kind of carve out his interests. And, and it was, it's like a spell. It's, it's a, uh, it's awesome. You know, to be honest. So, uh, well, Kirk, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. And I, I I'm so excited for the, the new book coming out. So, so I'm, I'm so happy that we were able to make this happen. And again, uh, you're so generous with your time today. This is great. Oh, I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm honored that you had me on and I'm, I'm really thrilled to be able to, to talk with you. Yeah, no, this was great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. On the episode page, I'll have links to Kirk's website, links to podcast episodes of NPR's This American Life, featuring Kirk's stories of the List Project and from The Feather Thief, links to Kirk's articles and where to buy his books, and of course, the video of the dancing flame bowerbird. Help spread the word about We Go Places podcast by sharing this episode with one other wildcat. You can find more episodes on Podbean, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Just search We Go Vox. That's W-E-G-O-V-O-X. You can also stay current by following us on Facebook, We Go Places podcast, and on Twitter, at We Go Places.